welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by NetHealth. So who are NetHealth? They are the fine people behind Redoc, powered by XFIT. It is a cloud-based, fully integrated EMR and billing solution. They can help expand your visit capacity, get you paid, which we all want, ramp up your patient engagement, and eliminate worries about documentation and compliance. And you can learn more about Redoc and a complete revenue management services at nethealth.com slash healthy. So a big thank you to NetHealth for sponsoring today's episode. And in today's episode... I am so happy to have Dr. Jennifer Stevens-Lapsley. So this was a Facebook Live that we did a couple of weeks ago. And so I'm not really going to edit that much because it was live and I think it really had a great feel to it. So a little bit more about Jennifer. She received her physical therapy degree at the University of Delaware, where she went on to complete a PhD in biomechanics and movement science with a focus on applied physiology. She then completed uh, postdoctoral training at the University of Florida. Her research uses a multifaceted approach to evaluate intervention strategies designed to enhance the effectiveness of rehabilitation in an older adult population. As such, her research ranges from understanding the mechanisms of skeletal muscle dysfunction to studies of implementation of best rehab practices in post-acute settings. She is the director of the Rehab Sciences PhD program Move Lab, the co-director of the Restore Group, and an investigator for VA Geriatrics Research, Education, and Clinical Center. And she's at the University of Colorado at Denver Anschutz Medical Campus. So a big thank you to Jennifer. I saw her speak at CSM on this topic of PhDs. So today you're getting a behind the scenes look at what it's like to get a PhD. If you're interested, how can you apply? How can you stand out? What to look for in a program? More importantly, what to look for in a mentor. So if you're thinking about going for a PhD, regardless of the field, this is the episode to listen to. So a big thanks to Jennifer for coming on and I hope you all enjoy. Okay. And we are live. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us. This is Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Live. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and I am joined today by Jennifer Stevens-Lapsley. So Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And so what I'll have you do is tell the listeners a little bit more about you and what you do. Absolutely. So I'm a professor of physical therapy at the University of Colorado in Denver, technically in Aurora, but Denver, Colorado. Um, and my research, I'm, I'm predominantly focused on research in older adult populations, looking at rehabilitation strategies to maximize physical function, improve the speed of recovery, 
Um, and I have done research in patients with joint arthroplasty and older adults for um, about 20 years now. I graduated from the University of Delaware with my master's in physical therapy, and then I went on to get my PhD at the University of Delaware as well. And then I did a fellowship uh, down at the University of Florida and came out to Colorado after that. So I've, I've, been, uh, I've been enjoying the, uh, the lifestyle out here in Colorado ever since. Nice. And if, if you are, for all the people who might be on right now, if you want to type your name and where you're from, or if you have any questions as we're going through or any comments, please do uh, give those comments because we would love to hear them and start even a little dialogue with you as we go through. So as people are coming on, just be sure to write down who you are and where you're coming from. And again, if you have any questions, we'd love them. So we're going to get this talk started. Uh, but before, I just want to preface that a couple of weeks ago, I did an interview with Michael Batty. Michael Michael yes, uh -huh, my colleague here at the University of Colorado. Right. And we were talking about the differences between residencies and fellowships. So today we're going to be talking more about PhD programs. So another track that you can do after you get your DPT in physical therapy. So can you quickly tell us the differences between a PhD program and a residency and or fellowship? Absolutely. So it depends on what your goals are as to what's going to be the right path for you. But typically a residency or fellowship is much more geared towards specialization in a particular patient population. So really narrowing down and becoming an expert in a particular subgroup of patients, um, developing case studies on individual patients, uh, maybe doing going into more management and, and related types of roles down the road as well. Whereas a PhD is much more geared towards individuals who might have a passion for teaching or practicing in research or, you know, getting involved in clinical research, um, asking questions that are probably a little bit more broad, uh, looking at questions that are going to change kind of the way that we practice across, you know, in, in the field of physical therapy for um, those of you who are interested in PhD training in kind of a rehab arena. And with PhD training, you're doing original research. Do you, I should say, do you have to do original research? No, there's a lot of different types of things you can do once you have a PhD. You can certainly um, look at uh, questions that don't involve original research. Um, many individuals uh, have questions that involve um, uh, like a systematic review or meta-analysis of existing literature. And so there are lots of different ways you can use that PhD training to answer really important clinical kind of questions and direct the field. And, you know, before we went on air, we were speaking a little bit and we were talking about PhD training and goals and things like that. So one of the things that's so important, I think, before you even decide that, yes, PhD is for me, is you should really know your ultimate goals or those long term right. goals. So can you speak to goal setting and things like that for people who are thinking about a PhD? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think really it comes back to the question of are you interested in really focusing your time and energy on patient contact more exclusively, like in a clinical, re in a residency or fellowship versus PhD training? And, and again, there's such a myriad of ways that PhD training can unfold. Um, I should have mentioned I'm the director of the Rehab Science PhD program here at the University of Colorado, but I've had experience with a lot of different PhD programs and they really do 
come in all shapes and sizes. And so as far as your goals, um, are you interested in going into more of a teaching role down the road? Um, maybe you might want to choose a program that allows you to get more experience in the classroom. Um, are you interested in a research career? Then you really want to choose a program that has a history of funding and a history of teaching individuals how to write grants and how to be competitive for those types of mechanisms. Um, are you interested in asking, um, you know, more education-based types of, of research questions? So in the classroom, scholarship, kind of how do we teach individuals to be more effective um, uh, educators and and relay information in ways that students have a faster uptake of uh, key content and um, so there's those are those are all important things to consider as you're kind of thinking about what your goals are if you're considering a PhD and then I always add the caveat of your your goals can change too and once you're in a PhD program mm -hmm. I've certainly seen many times where people think they want to go one route and they choose kind of to go a slightly different direction. Once they get immersed in research, for example, they might say, oh, you know what, I really like this. Mm -hmm. um, I have. I was one of those people that thought I was gonna get much more immersed in teaching than research when I first got my PhD. And, and here I am much more, um, I'm invested in teaching, but much, much a greater percentage of my, my time is spent on clinical research. So keeping an open mind while still having some goals and some direction kind of is, is important. So striking a balance between those two. Yeah, and that kind of leads into my next question, which I think you answered a little bit already, mm -hmm. but that's how do you choose the right PhD program for you? So what kind of qualities should you be looking for in a PhD program? Obviously, you, you answered a couple of them uh, just now, talking about depending on your goals, if you want to be in an institution that's more geared towards research versus teaching, but what other things can students, so if there's any uh, DPT students now, or let's say new grads who are thinking, you know, I want to go and get my PhD. What are some, what is your best advice for uh, what to look for in a PhD program? Yeah, no, great question. It's one that we get asked quite a bit. Um, really, the track record of the mentors in the program is one of the most important considerations. So, looking at you know. Um, what the track record is of the mentees underneath a mentor. Have they been successful? Have they been able to be productive um, talking to the mentees and getting a feel for their experiences and the mentorship style? Um, so regardless of the structure of a program, selecting the right mentor is going to be really critical. Making sure that your learning style matches the mentors as well as uh, making sure whether you know you you want to be in a big lab and a small lab, um, the resources are there to to answer the types of questions that you might want to um, answer. And so, um, so those are things I always uh, emphasize. You know, uh, are there additional interdisciplinary training opportunities as your interests might grow? Um, are the campus resources and the lab resources extensive? You know, or do you want to be on a medical campus specifically? Mm -hmm. um, is that not as important to you? Uh, so those are those are some of the things that that we we tend to highlight. The other um, piece is, you know, how much in terms of the curriculum, how course intensive is the program? So if you're someone who really learns better by doing instead of being in a classroom, you should probably be in a program where the number of credit hours required to complete the PhD is less and more focused on practical learning experiences. Um, and there are many programs out there, I think, 
Um, that's a really key consideration. Some programs have twice the number of credit hours. Um, and so you really do spend quite a bit of time in the didactic portion. And if that's not something you're interested in, you really should choose something that's, that's a little lighter in that respect. You can still get a really good quality education um, with the hands-on approaches. Um, so that's another really important consideration. Um, and then, you know, what is the, the, what's, what's the environment like outside of school, um, outside of work? What's the work-life balance? You mean you'll be doing something outside exactly. of school? <laughs> That's that the hope, right? <laughs> you, you spend a lot of time, certainly in the training phases, but you have to have a balance. So what does that look like? And is the uh -huh. environment, the location, the, you know, the other things that you're passionate about, are they still going to be readily accessible to you so that you can have that work-life balance? And, you know, you were speaking about all of these things to look for in the program, whether it be the type of mentors, the track record, uh, the type of programming. Is all of this readily accessible on university websites? You know, that is one of the biggest challenges, I think, out there right now. There is a website through the APTA that lists all the PhD programs in the country. But you really have to do quite a bit of digging to kind of you know, get into the details of each of these programs. Are they full-time? Are they part-time? How long does it take to graduate? It was rarely published. So you have to be willing to kind of ask a lot of questions and put some time into the, the detective work. Um, so maybe you narrow down the programs on the basis of some geographical constraint. You know, you want to be in a certain part of the country. And so I'm going to look at these five programs and I'm going to start there, ask questions of the mentors, contact the director of the program, contact the people that are listed as potential mentors, mm -hmm. ask them for um, names of their mentees, mm -hmm. and then start to kind of piece, piece together the the story of what that environment would look like for you. But unfortunately, it does take a lot of legwork. There's no one central resource at this point in time. Okay, well, that's good to know. And I think it's good for people watching to know as well. Yeah. Now, you know, we, we you kind of just said part-time versus full-time programs. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about part-time versus full-time. And mm -hmm. can you also touch upon the long-distance learning versus sure. being having that on-campus learning? Absolutely. Yeah. So those are um, uh, really important distinctions depending on what your goals are. So it kind of comes back to your question about the goals. You know, I'll start with the long distance versus being on campus per se, whether you're on campus in a full time or a part time program or typically long distance will will usually be a part time program. And there are pros and cons, of course, but a lot of long distance programs. Um, I have a lot of students contacting me saying that they, they feel a little bit more isolated. So it depends on how the program is set up in terms of the interaction amongst the existing students, maybe discussion boards or chat rooms or resources with faculty. But a lot of times those students end up feeling like they don't have the benefit of bouncing ideas off of colleagues and um, growing quite as much. Um, however, it can be, it, it addresses, um, one of many challenges, which is if you can't move to do um, a PhD right. and you're limited geographically, then it may be that that's a compromise that you're willing to make in order to um, to get the PhD. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about kind of on-site types of training, um, part-time and full-time programs both exist. And the on-site training is really um, uh You'll go through the program faster if you do it full time and often with more immersion. Um, but there's certainly a lot of really good part time programs that that allow for you to um, work while maybe not full time, maybe part time while you're completing your coursework. 
And so my experience here, we have a part-time program and a full-time program is mm -hmm. the individuals that are involved in the part-time program will often take maybe six, sometimes seven years to graduate. It depends on the student. Mm -hmm. um, whereas our full-time program, our target is closer to four years. Okay. So there's a, you know, there's a trade-off there. It's a time commitment. Yeah. It is a time commitment. But, you know, in a lot of cases, if you have family and other constraints, the part-time program might be the best, the best option. Um, you have a mortgage on a house. You, from a financial standpoint, can't give up your current job. Um, however, the full-time programs, when you have that full immersion, you generate a much faster track record of productivity, which tends to launch your career a lot more um, uh, quickly. And if you're in research, it, it serves as kind of that momentum to really serve, you know, lay the foundation for future work. So yeah. I often encourage people who really are passionate about research to go the full-time route if they can, because it, it helps propel them forward. Got it. Um, faster. Got it. It's all about trade-offs, you know? It's all about what, right. what can you endure at this point in time and in your life. And exactly. I think it's great that people have all of these different options. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think the options continue to grow. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the that it, it is nice to have a variety of options to figure out what's going to fit your individual needs. And on that note, we're going to take a quick 30-second break to hear from our sponsor, NetHealth. PTs, what do you hope to accomplish in 2018? I bet providing even better patient care and increasing revenue are top on the list. First, expand your visit capacity. Then get paid for your services, ramp up patient engagement, and eliminate worries about documentation and compliance. The good news is there's one solution that brings it all to the table. Redoc, powered by XFIT, is a cloud-based, fully integrated EMR and billing solution. Imagine PT billing, coding, compliance experts taking the back office work off your hands and reporting to you. Learn more about Redoc and complete revenue cycle management services at nethealth.com slash healthy. Now, we talked a little bit about mentors. Mm -hmm. and from what I've been told and other people that I've interviewed about PhD programs, it's all about the mentor. Mm -hmm. yes. So, and, and you certainly said that when you're looking for your PhD program. Mm -hmm. So what should one look for in a mentor? Yeah, so that great, really important question. Um, again, it's about the fit with your learning style. So if you're someone who really likes hands-on kind of um, mentorship with one-on-one -on -one feedback on a very regular basis, you should make sure that your mentor is available or the team that you'd be working with, the mentor team is available um, on that level. If you're someone who really likes to work on your own and you're much more productive and in individually, then maybe you can, maybe a mentor that has more of a uh, hands-off approach is, is appropriate. Um, so that's, that's an important characteristic. Um, and then let's see other mentorship characteristics. Um, you know, I, history repeats itself. So what's, what's again, the track record? Um, mm -hmm. If you're moving into an environment where someone hasn't published as productively as other other people in the field have, chances are your experience as a mentee isn't going to be quite as productive in that arena. Um, if, you, if your mentor has a history of writing grants, chances are you're going to get more experience and exposure. Um, and so really, really figuring out what that matches. If your mentor is really passionate about teaching, um, you're probably going to get a lot of exposure to teaching strategies and techniques and things like that that are going to make you a very effective educator. So if you're interviewing at different PhD programs, these are questions you want to ask, right? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you yep. shouldn't be afraid to ask these questions. Absolutely. It's a it's about a it's a two-way street. So I call I consider um, one of my colleagues said this many years ago that PhD 
um, defining the right mentor for a PhD is almost like a mini marriage because it's a very close working relationship where you really have that one-on-one -on -one contact for an extended period of time. And you shouldn't be afraid to ask questions to evaluate the fit for both you and the mentor shouldn't be afraid to ask questions to really probe and make sure that you're the right candidate for their environment as well. Because right. it is, it's a commitment. It's a very rewarding relationship. Yeah. It's something that I am, I love mentoring students. I'm passionate about trying to infuse the knowledge and the resources and the, the, um, the things that we need in order to advance our profession. But we are very, we certainly look very closely for the right candidates um, that, that are a good fit for our environment. And how about mentoring the, the, the non-traditional student? So the student that maybe has a family mm -hmm. and who has, you know, very kind of important obligations outside of their PhD studies, or maybe they're they just got married and they want to start a family in the middle mm -hmm. of their PhD studies. Absolutely. How do you do that if you're the mentor? Right. So we've certainly had yeah had all those scenarios, and um, I think really more and more recognition towards different mentoring strategies and styles and timelines and working with individuals as individuals instead of kind of a one size fits all approach is really critical, um, and trying to understand you know, the timeline for one person is going to be different than the timeline for the next person because of these individual um, other important priorities in their lives. And so all those things can be worked around. I think my experience has been that if you are really focused, um, regardless of these other life um, pieces that may come into play, if you're a really focused individual, you can still balance and juggle these things. And as a mentor, it's important to set deadlines and to set boundaries um, because it's also easy in life to get distracted. And PhD training is the challenge with it is it's not as structured as residency, fellowship, DPT training. You have a lot of free time and a lot of open-ended kind of, mm -hmm. you need to get this done in the next six months. And um, when people have a lot of other things going on, outside of their PhD studies, it's important to make sure that the environment that they are in has enough structure that they're going to be able to kind of be held accountable for their benefit to complete their studies in a timely manner. Yeah, that makes sense. So so you're still mindful of the priorities outside of the program, but at the same time, you have to have a little bit of structure so that that person isn't just sort of Right. off in their own world and and then prolonging perhaps their experience right, and exactly. not getting to where they want to get in a timely manner. That's exactly right. right. Okay. Everyone, you know, there's a certain element of deadlines or deadlines for a reason. And so when there's some accountability and some targets mm -hmm. um, and sometimes the targets get missed, um, but at least there's a target and a trajectory that kind of keeps people on track so that they're not 10 years down the road wishing that they had finished their PhD five years yeah. ago. Right, right, right. That makes so, sense. Yeah. And now we just had at CSM in New Orleans a great panel on the CSM panel after dark panel. Mm -hmm. The CSM after dark panel that was all about diversity and physical therapy, inclusion, equity for people of different races and genders and socioeconomic backgrounds and sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. So are there mentors, are there programs within a PhD framework that can help to support some of these students? Because as we were Absolutely. saying before we went on the air, um, something that this panel, this After Dark panel did, was it showed other people of color 
that, wow, there's Lisa Van Hoos. She has her PhD and she's a professor right. at the University of Arkansas. I can see myself in her. Right, right. You know, Absolutely. It's important for the profession and certainly important to have this broad range of deep thinkers. Right. And Absolutely. So what what have you seen, whether it be at where you where you are at or other schools across the country as far as helping to increase encourage. that pool? Yeah, yeah, the diversity. Yeah, no, I think um, one of the strengths of programs across the country is start is that they're starting to recognize this need. And there's more and more like I went through a class that um, was really focused on mentoring and diversity and how do you really truly um, cater to a lot of different viewpoints and whether they're cultural, whether, you know, whatever, whatever the differences are. Um, one of the things that's really nice is that NIH offers um, uh, some funding. So there's some mechanisms for diverse candidates. And so that increases the likelihood of, of having some funding while you're a PhD student um, and gives you that track record. Um, so it gives you a little bit of a leg up for future opportunities. And so we're starting to see just in general more awareness along those lines. Um, and I'm really pleased to see that. We've had a number of our trainees qualify for these diversity supplements and scholarships and things like that um, over the past uh, decade or so in our program. And it's been really rewarding to see that. Still have a ways to go. We still need to continue to increase the diversity of our, of our candidate pool, but um, we're making progress. And that's good. And I think, like, like I said, the more younger therapists coming up who can see themselves and more experienced therapists, I think it's right. a great way to kind of role model yeah yeah to role model so you have one and then maybe five c and then 20 and then 50 right. and then it just kind of keeps growing which is exactly maybe overly optimistic on my part but i don't think so i think the more that people right. see other people that look like them and sound like them and it right. just makes for a, a much more well well-rounded pool of people and thinkers absolutely only yep. build the profession up that's so right now, lots of I don't know how many PhD, how many PhD programs are there? Uh, gosh, you know, I honestly don't know. Um, probably a good amount, right? A good number in the country. I mean, okay. I think the question is how many are specific to like rehabilitation science or movement science? Right, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I, the APTA website really does a nice job mm -hmm. of breaking down the ones that are more specific to rehab, which which I think is another important question people ask, well, should I get a PhD in a rehab movement science related field or, or can I get a PhD in psychology or another area? Um, and you can do either. However, I think if you're really gonna ask clinically relevant questions from the beginning, rooting your training in kind of a rehab science arena makes a lot of sense. And looking for interdisciplinary partners that kind of help expand the way you think on a campus is probably the way to go because when you remove yourself from the rehab arena, it's it, it can be more difficult to to kind of anchor some of those early questions. Yeah, that makes sense. So if you're for any students listening or or people who are interested in going into moving into a PhD program, what can they do to make their application stand out? Because you know, it's not like of, you're accepting 500 right. people. You know? Right, 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 right. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we look for the most is some experience in research. And the, the reason I think um, PhD programs tend to look for this is and this is and this is hard because clinicians don't often have that type of experience. So anything you can get to give you that type of exposure, the research process is incredibly rewarding, but it's not. Um, like patient care where you see a patient in front of you and within a week or two you see progress. 
Mm -hmm. um, there's a much lengthier timeline in order to see gains and improvements um, or impact. And so one of the reasons why it's important to have some of that experience is to make sure that that's right for you, that you have a tolerance for that kind of the long haul approach mm -hmm. with potential for a much bigger splash at the end than just treating individual patients. But you have to have a real willingness to kind of um, stick with it um, as far as the research yeah. questions that are being asked. So um, so I think that's that's just getting that type of experience or exposure, staying current with the literature. I mean, one of the, one of the things that clues us in right away is even if someone doesn't have a lot of research experience, can they ask questions because they've read the literature, they know the latest and greatest techniques um, in a certain area. Um, they can synthesize the literature, they can um, yeah. evaluate kind of what, what are the next logical steps for clinical questions to be asked. Yeah. So that's important, especially if you haven't had research experience to at least come in knowledgeable in that arena. Yeah, that makes sense. And how would one, if I'm a treating clinician, how would I get involved in research? Yeah, that's that's one of the hardest things, I think, because it's hard to just walk in the door of, you know, I, I usually encourage people to seek out their local academic institution, like whatever, what's closest to you. Like and Columbia see, or NYU. Or, exactly, yeah. right. And see, is someone working, it doesn't have to be in an area that, that you're um, well-versed or passionate about, but something in the rehab or some research-related realm where you could just get your feet wet and you could start to get some exposure. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the best ways to, to kind of get that initial um, kind of foot in the door. Okay. Um, if you're a DPT student, you know, get involved while you're a DPT student in some aspect of research because it's so much easier to do it while you're there and completing your training. Um, but there's certainly opportunities later down the road. Go to CSM and talk to colleagues about opportunities. Sometimes, you know, we're able to arrange for a long distance type of opportunity or project or things like that to get people a little bit of exposure. Um, so start just networking, connecting, asking, asking around, you know, where, where are those opportunities? Great. Well, that's great advice. And now we save the, the, la the best question for last. Mm -hmm. How do you pay for all this? <laughs> that's the that's you probably just, the question I get the most. Yes. You just got out of school. You're a hundred plus K in debt. Yes. Who wants to take on more debt? That's right. That's right. So I think that's um, so there's one thing that I really want to emphasize, and that is that loan repayment grants through the National Institutes of Health through, through NIH will pay back a hundred percent of your federal loans. And there is, um, we've had an incredibly high rate of success at students getting those um, loan repayment grants. Some of them have gotten them as PhD students. Some of them have gotten them as fellows, postdoctoral fellows. Um, some of them have gotten them as junior faculty members. Um, and so I really emphasize, don't go out and practice for five, 10 years to pay off your loans with the intention of coming back and getting a PhD. Have the government pay off your loans. Go back to school earlier. Yeah, that sounds better. And then you don't have to deal with $100,000 of debt. Um, but the other important distinction is that you, if you have a full-time program, usually you have a stipend, and usually your tuition is covered and your health insurance are covered. Um, so, for example, our program offers a $30,000 a year stipend plus health insurance and tuition. But if you're part-time, you're going to pay your own tuition and your health insurance. Um, and so that's the financial trade-off. You're also in a full-time program, a lot of times eligible for a lot more scholarships. Um, and one of the key elements that I emphasize is your earning potential. Um, we've done the math. Um, your earning potential is such that you can work later in life as an academic. So you make it up in the long run. 
And you really don't end up in as much debt as you might think um, when you look at the difference in, in salaries between clinical salaries and academic salaries. We've estimated that with PhD with some scholarship funding, might you might have $50,000 lost earnings, but you might have paid off $100,000 of your debt in your loans. And that $50,000 is likely to be recouped in the first five years of a faculty position and then further recouped down the road. So while people see the finances as the, the ultimate barrier, our math suggests that it shouldn't be. It's really going back to school earlier and, and having the government pay off your loans. You don't need a lot of clinical experience. You need uh, some exposure to ask the right questions and then partnering with clinical colleagues. Um, but don't go out and work for years and then go back and, and not have the advantage of having someone else pay your loans off for you. That makes a lot of sense. How easy are these NIH grants to get? You know, we've had um, uh, an 80% hit rate um, on in terms of success um, in getting these loans funded. So they're much, much better than most NIH grants. Now that's true, that, that again comes down to the environment you're in too. So you wanna be in an environment where there's a track record um, of success and mentoring. So that's another like that. thing to look for in a PhD yes. program. If you're looking around, you can ask, hey, what is your success rate with NIH right. loan repayment? Yep. Exactly, exactly. Good. That's a great tip. So for everyone watching out there, yeah. that is a huge tip if you want to go on for a PhD. Yeah. Well, that's huge because that's everyone's, you know, question is how am I going to pay for this? Yes, like, right. Yeah, that's number right. one question. No, yes. so now before we wrap things up, are what are some key takeaways that you would like the audience to get from this discussion? Sure. You know, if you're interested in PhD training, an academic environment is such a rewarding environment to work in. There's so much flexibility. There's a lot of opportunities to grow however you want to grow in terms of your career. Um, and I really love the, the there's never kind of a, uh, there's always a new, new um, and exciting kind of opportunity right around the corner kind of feeling. So it's 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 really um, just remarkably rewarding to to be in this environment. And I would encourage people not to be scared about taking that next step because it really, you know, it's a big step, but it's also it'll pay off if it's if it's the right match for your interests. Um, and I also again encourage people not to wait too long because we don't have a lot of evidence to suggest that years of clinical experience translates to a better academic career than just getting out there and working for a year or two and coming back and and hitting the ground running and and being in academia earlier in your career. Okay, great key points. And then the last question I ask everyone, I probably should have prefaced this before mm -hmm. we started, but I forgot. Um, that is, knowing where you are in your career mm -hmm. and in your life, what advice would you give to yourself when you graduated from the University of Delaware all those years sure. ago as a new PT? Um, hmm. You know, I would probably say that I would have spent more time on kind of what you just described. The mentor piece um, is probably the most important factor, not necessarily the area in which they're like what they're studying. And I think a lot of people say, I want to go into this area. So I have to find a mentor that studies that area. And that's not really necessarily what's going to make you successful. I was really fortunate to have a lot of really good mentors along the way. Um, it's more about the quality of the mentoring than the actual subject matter that you're studying. Once you understand the research process, you can apply it to any patient population out there. And so being open to, to, 
mentors that may not match your exact patient population where you're the most passionate, but you'll learn the skills and you'll end up a better researcher, a better educator, better academic in the long run. Perfect. And where can people find you if they have any questions or want to learn more? Um, So I would be more than happy to answer questions. I am really invested in trying to make sure people make the right decisions for their academic paths and PhD training in particular. And I I can be pretty easily, um, my my name's a bit of a mouthful. The Stevens Lapsley part um, is a bit of a mouthful. But if you go to the University of Colorado Physical Therapy Program and look under faculty, I'm the director of the Rehab Sciences PhD program, um, you should be able to to link to to my email and, and, um, and certainly feel free to shoot me an email with any additional questions. And I have a number of resources and things like that, cheat sheets, fact sheets, things like that, that people have used um, to help uh, guide kind of the questions they should be asking and um, and considerations that 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 uh, we've covered some of a large, large amount of uh, in this particular podcast. Great. Thanks so much. And Christina says, thank you. This was really helpful. So thank you to both. Thank you to both. So thank you, Christina, for listening. And thanks to everyone else for listening. Thank you, Jennifer, for taking the time out of your day today. And everyone, I hope you have a great rest of your night and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. A huge thank you to Dr. Jennifer Stevens-Lapsley for all of that great info on PhDs. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor for today's episode, NetHealth. So they are Redoc powered by XFIT. It is a cloud-based, fully integrated EMR and billing solution. Plus, you can opt in to completely outsourced billing services. That's the best way to optimize your revenue. So imagine PT billing, coding, and compliance experts taking the back office work off your hands and reporting to you. That way you can do what you do best, which is treat your patients. So learn more about Redoc and complete revenue cycle management services at nethealth.com healthy. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.